Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego is scaling back vaccine mandates. Health officials are particularly looking at the boosters and the amount of boosters that have been delivered. And that's where San Diego is lagging behind. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen is away today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We'll tell you about new legislation to prevent jail deaths. I would hope it develops into a way to remove the badge and the gun from mental health services. The tale of the constantly unfinished Mission Valley underpass. And a conversation with actor Robert Duvall about The Godfather. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego City and county governments are starting to scale back vaccine mandates and testing requirements. Meanwhile, COVID infection rates in the county are rising again. Joining me now with an update on these changes is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome back. Hey, Jade. So where do San Diego's vaccination rates currently stand? So looking at it from a county perspective, according to state data, we're at 81% of the eligible population that are fully vaccinated. Now that may sound like we're doing pretty good, but just our neighbors next to us in Imperial County, they have the state's highest vaccination rate at 94%. Now, something that health officials are particularly looking at, you know, we know that immunity wanes from having uh, vaccinations, including for COVID, and they're really looking at the boosters and the amount of boosters that have been delivered. And that's where San Diego is lagging behind. I mean, we are in the 40 percentile range, 42 percent for eligible population. Now compare that to San Francisco, they're at 75 percent. This week, hundreds of city workers had religious or medical vaccine exemptions granted. Uh, What's behind this decision? 
Mayor Todd Gloria, he says that this was always something that was going to be coming both for religious and medical exemptions. But you talk to some of the union leadership that represents the city employees, they weren't so sure. Some of them thought the city was going to be uh, denying all of the religious exemptions. Turns out, you know, out of about 800 that they've approved, they've only denied about 15. So it seems like that they are green lighting all of these. Now, what spurred that to happen? Um, You know, some of the unions say, we knew that this was coming. And some have to wonder about, was this a threat of legal action and legal action that had been taken against the city, something that made them do this? It was also recently announced that unvaccinated county workers will no longer be regularly tested for COVID-19, while new non-healthcare hires do not have to be vaccinated. What can you tell us about this? We're seeing the city is obviously keeping their vaccination mandate. And for the city, those unvaccinated workers that got exemptions, they're going to have to be regularly tested. And then we're seeing the county make the opposite move where they're saying, you know, those who are unvaccinated no longer have to be regularly tested and new hires don't have to be vaccinated. Now, we're hearing from them that the reasoning for that, the county public health officer, Dr. Wilma Wooten, points to hospitalization and deaths being down. We know that they've said that cases are still too high for this region, but there was no specific word on in terms of, you know, we can't fill vacancies. So that's why we're doing this. What's been the reaction from leading medical experts on these changes? Well, in terms of the county specifically, we are hearing from the top public health officers saying that, you know, the numbers are trending in the right direction and sort of agreeing with this decision that they're making here. But a lot of medical experts have warned that, you know, things like we're seeing uh, in Europe with surges over there, uh, typically, historically, we've then gotten those surges here a few weeks later. Um, So, and that's something the governor's talked about, you know, the ability to scale back up again, whether it be restrictions or not. So uh, we're just going to have to see how it all plays out. And in brief, as we wrap up here, are we seeing the beginning of a new normal with regards to COVID safety guidelines here in San Diego? I think the answer to that is yes, but I think it's going to be changing. You know, as we see new variants coming in, as we see cases coming back in, I think we may see some of these start coming back for at least limited periods of time. Like if there was a rash of cases, we may see a a mask mandate coming for, for San Diego County or something like that. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jade. San Diego County named Anthony Ray as interim sheriff on Tuesday. He's expected to be sworn into the temporary role on April 5th. The announcement came in the midst of new proposed legislation aimed at reducing the number of people who die in county jails. A report by the California State Auditor found that the San Diego County Sheriff's Department failed to adequately prevent and respond to the deaths of individuals in its custody. Assemblywoman Akila Weber was joined by Senate President Tony Atkins and other local lawmakers in announcing the Saving Lives Custody Act. Here's a little of what Dr. Weber had to say. There were 185 deaths in San Diego County jails between 2006 and 2020. San Diego in custody deaths were higher than any other county in California. The effort to focus attention on the lethal problem in San Diego jails was started by local grassroots organizations. Maureen Cavanaugh spoke with Yusuf Miller, co-founder of the North County Equity and Justice Coalition, about this bill. Here's that interview. When did the alarming number of in-custody deaths in San Diego come to your attention? We've known throughout the decades of dealing with in-custody deaths and families who have lost lives, but it came to a point for us in 2019 when we heard about the loss of Elisa Serna, and 
that launched our campaign in 2020, the Saving Lives in Custody campaign. That was launched by the North County Equity and Justice Coalition with support from the Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego, Surge North County, and the North San Diego County NAACP, American Arab Anti-Defamation League, Hintonita, and many others. And what kind of stories have you heard from families about losing loved ones after they've been arrested? We've heard about neglect, process failures. And by neglect, I mean inmates would ask for medical care, medical assistance with disabilities, medication for withdrawals, heart medication, and denied repeatedly on these requests. And we would see at times, loss of life. We have many people who were denied these requests that didn't lose their lives, but we have people that come to us, their family members, in tears because their family member has lost their life after requesting life-saving measures. Is the Saving Lives in Custody Act, the one presented by lawmakers, the kind of bill you wanted? Yes, it is. We want to thank Dr. Akila Weber and all her colleagues for advancing this act. When we came up with the Saving Lives in Custody campaign in 2020, we had no idea it would go this far. You know, we didn't have that kind of confidence in the system. But Dr. Akila Weber and her allies, they saw the, the value and the need of this, and they developed this act, which we're very, very thankful for. Are there any changes you'd like to see? The Saving Lives in Custody Act, I would hope that develops into a way to remove the badge and the gun from mental health services, from drug addiction services, and homelessness outreach. And we see from the victims of these neglects in custody, they fit in at least one or all three of these issues. And we see the failure is the connection and the bridge between the badge and the gun and these services. We need clinicians, we need civilians, to run these programs that have a more vested interest in their success. Now, this bill has just been introduced. It's not scheduled to be voted on or to go into effect for a while. Do you think any interim measures are, are needed? The Attorney General, Rob Bonta, can come in and take charge, and we're asking for that. We've seen that happen in 1991 with the L.A. riots. We've seen it with 2016 when Kamala Harris, the current vice president, was the AG of California. So we know that they can step in when there are crises like this. Too many people are dying. As a matter of fact, last week, two more people have died. So we are in a crisis, make no mistake. And we're asking Rob Bonta in the interim to come in and take charge of San Diego County jails and implement reforms to save lives. Since Sheriff Bill Gore resigned, the county sheriff's department says it's taken steps to make jails safer with more safety checks and accountability. But as you mentioned, of course, those two recent deaths last week put a question mark to that. Do you think the department is now committed to improving conditions? We've been asking for these same things for decades and it's fallen on deaf ears. And now they want to do something. We just don't have the confidence and we can't risk the lives of other family members. So it's a bit of a situation where we have too little, too late. So we would like for an outside entity to come in and enforce these reform measures to save lives. I've been speaking with Yusuf Miller, co-founder of the North County Equity and Justice Coalition. Yusuf, thank you so much. Thank you.
COVID has caused a shift at many workplaces, with employees leaving for other jobs or for other employers that they think are a better fit. Those employees include San Diego law enforcement officers, some leaving because of COVID mandates. But KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado found that's not the only reason. Deputy Darnell Calhoun is just starting his shift. He's one of Riverside County Sheriff's Department's new hires. Welcome to Riverside County Sheriff's Department. Appreciate it, man. And while he's just meeting some of his colleagues for the first time, he's no rookie. He comes with three years of experience in law enforcement from a department that's considered top-notch, the San Diego Police Department. And I'm glad that I can be here and be a part of the community. Morale feels really good here. Um, morale in San Diego, yeah, it was, it was touch and go. He says he loved his colleagues in San Diego and already knew the city well. Then things started to change. And a lot of people started to leave due to a lot of the vaccination status stuff that I won't really get into. So it took a hard hit on my station. Calhoun is vaccinated himself, but he left SDPD for several reasons, including low morale and an increasing workload. And that, he says, is a problem when you're doing an already dangerous job. You know, you take one call at a time. And yeah, it's, it's rough. That's not something I wish on on anyone. Sergeant Jared Wilson is the president of the San Diego Police Officers Association. There is essentially unlimited overtime for officers to work right now, but they're burnt out and we go a lot of positions that are unfilled. He says the force should have 2,000 officers, but they're down to just 1,700 available for patrol, thanks to a combination of factors including retirements and resignations to take other jobs. Our officers are hot commodities. Between 2006 in 2021, the San Diego Police Department hired and lost 2,400 officers and recruits. He says this is having an impact on crime. So far this year, homicide rates are up 80% over last year. I have never seen homicide rates skyrocket this quickly, this fast, in just the first two months of this year. Certainly not in my 15 years as a police officer. And response times are getting longer. A priority one call, which is something like a burglary in progress, a violent attack in progress, an assault, or a fight in progress, those response times are in excess of 30 minutes to get a police officer to you. I feel very, very bad for the other agencies. That's Riverside County Sheriff Chad Bianco. He says his department is reaping the rewards of officers leaving large city forces like SDPD. He says last year they hired fewer than 20 officers from other departments. And this year, there's already more than 60 in some stage of the hiring process. Nearly 20 of them are from San Diego County agencies, already trained and ready to hit the streets. We are just overwhelmed at the level of experience and training that we're getting. Uh, we have SWAT team members. We have canines that are coming over. We have uh, aviation uh, people that are coming over. The Riverside County Sheriff's Department does not mandate vaccines, but Bianco says the background checks are still rigorous and he won't hire officers with a history of disciplinary issues. But so far, the ones applying are as good as they get. So far, we that's, that's all we are finding. We are finding stellar employees from these other agencies that are leaving simply because of the vaccine mandate at their agency. And, uh, and we're Quite frankly, we're just, we're getting a huge reward. Calhoun says he's glad to work closer to home and not have to commute 90 minutes one way. But he says San Diego could have done more to keep officers in its ranks. Obviously, if you bump everyone's pay up a little bit more, if you 
uh, paying to their retirement a little bit more, things like that, that would go a long way as well. Union President Jared Wilson hopes a more competitive contract will stop the hemorrhaging and attract good officers. This isn't just about the vaccine mandates. That is the number one thing that pushed people out the door. We also have vaccinated officers leaving now because they're underpaid and they're overworked. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. Early voting is underway in a special election for the 80th Assembly District, covering the southern part of San Diego, Chula Vista, and National City. KPBS Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer says two Democrats and one Republican are in the race, all with different visions for the future of San Diego's South Bay. The Assembly District 80 seat opened up in January when Lorena Gonzalez resigned to take a job with the California Labor Federation. Three candidates are in the race, Democrats David Alvarez and Georgette Gomez, and Republican Lincoln Picard. Gonzalez has endorsed Gomez. I am proud to, to have the support of former Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, somebody that did a lot in, in behalf of our district. For Gomez, this is a return to politics. She was president of the San Diego City Council and ran an unsuccessful campaign for Congress in 2020. During that run, she was criticized for not reporting $100,000 of income on her tax returns. And that criticism is being made again in this election. There wasn't me trying to do a roundaround on taxes. It was literally a mistake, an, an intentional mistake, but I fixed it right away. But she says that the current anti-Gomez mailers are being pushed by oil, tow truck and insurance companies, funding one of her opponents, David Alvarez. She says that's because some of the key points from her platform focus on the climate crisis as well as affordable housing and income inequality. On advancing solutions to, to improve our transit system, to continue bringing more affordable housing, even as someone that is in the private sector now. Um, so I, to me, that's where my commitment and what I'm grounded on, and that's never going to change no matter where I'm at. Campaign finance records show Alvarez has received donations from those special interests that Gomez mentions, among others. He says Gomez is being supported by Sacramento politicians who don't want things to change. In a written statement, he told KPBS, they are doing this because they know they can control her, that if she is elected, nothing will change. By contrast, I have run a 100% positive campaign based on the issues. Like Gomez, Alvarez is a Democrat, a former San Diego City Council member, and a native of Barrio Logan. People feel like 
Sacramento often forgets them and they want to make sure that education is a priority, that higher education is a priority, that crime gets addressed as our South Bay communities and San Diego have seen an increase in crime over the last year. Lincoln Picard is the third candidate in the race, a Republican running in a heavily Democratic district. If the odds are against me, the, the smart money will be on one of the other candidates because there's such a disparity in the amount, the demographics are totally different in our district. His platform focuses on the cost of living and running a company in California, along with education and water management, among other issues. It would take a lot of voters out there that are sick and tired of the democratic rules and regulations which are driving so many businesses out of our state, which means they're taking jobs with them. The special election is only to fill out the remainder of Lorena Gonzalez's term. If one candidate gets 50% plus one of the vote, they'll win the seat outright. But if no one does, there will be a runoff on June 7th, the same day as a regular election for the next term, which begins in December and covers a redrawn District 80 thanks to the last census. The same three candidates are running in that race too. Here's a last word from each on the issues that matter to them, starting with David Alvarez. Education, crime on the rise, homelessness issues, they matter to the, the people in both the old district and the new district. So we're talking about the same issues, we're having those conversations, and it just means that in June we'll have to find a way to talk to more people. Georgette Gomez. At the end of the day, it's about building healthy communities, uh, making sure that there's housing that is affordable, making sure that people have clean air, uh, making sure that there are better jobs and our education system is robust. And Lincoln Picard. But if you care about gas taxes and you care about school choice, you care about the Second Amendment, you care about some of these real important values that, that make America what it is, I ask for your vote. Early voting is underway now and runs through April 4th, or voters can go to the polls on April 5th. And KPBS City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer spoke with Maureen Cavanaugh. Here's that interview. Can you explain again how this special election works? Uh, if one of the candidates gets 50% plus one on election day, April 5th, what happens? So the special election is to replace former assembly member Lorena Gonzalez. She left that position back in January. So if someone gets 50% plus one of the votes or the majority, they will have won this special election outright, and then they will take over that position that Gonzalez formerly had. That being said, there's another regular election for the role that will have its primary in June, and that would have always happened with or without Gonzalez leaving the role earlier this year. And if no one gets a majority in the special election on April 5th, what happens then? So if no one gets the majority vote on April 5th in the special election, then a runoff election will take place on June 7th. And what makes this really interesting is that's the same day as the regular elections primary, the registrar of voters, when I reached out to them, they said that the runoff election and the regular primary election questions, they'll even be featured on the same voting ballot. And if no one gets a majority in the regular election primary on June 7th, then it goes on to the general election in November? Right. So if no one gets the majority vote for the regular election on that June 7th date we were talking about, it's going to be basically another runoff in November with the top two vote getters from the June primary. The situation is quite unique with the timing for sure with Gonzalez leaving and then the actual regular election happening right afterwards. And the candidates, all of them told me that they recognize there's going to be a lot of campaigning for these elections this year, too. 
David Alvarez was a member of the San Diego City Council, and he ran for mayor back in 2014. He lost to Kevin Faulkner. Has he said why he wants to return to politics? When I spoke with Alvarez, he told me he's really kind of ready to come back after spending some time with his family and then in the private sector. He said that he wants to be a voice of South Bay and most importantly, a point he kind of hit back on many times is he doesn't want Sacramento to pick their next assembly member, which is one of kind of his campaign measures he's claiming against Gomez. And you say his campaign has received donations from oil, tow truck, and insurance companies. Does he have a bigger war chest than the other two candidates in the race? So in terms of fiscal donations, he and Gomez, the front runners, have been receiving It's been pretty similar in financial backing, um, with each having received around $190,000 to $220,000. That's outside of late donations, and this information is publicly available on the Cal Access website. That's what tracks campaign campaign finances here in the state. Um, Lincoln Picard, the third candidate, his campaign has nothing to report at the moment. Besides former 80th District Assembly member Lorena Gonzalez, are there other well-known names who are endorsing Georgette Gomez? So Gomez has the backing of a lot of big names, most importantly, the Democratic Party, which is a touchpoint she's been hitting on a lot. Some other organizations and people who are backing her include San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria, the California Federation of Teachers, and the California Nurses Association, among many other groups and labor unions. In short, she has some of the biggest local and statewide names backing her. Now, Republican Lincoln Picard has been running for election in San Diego for several years for several different offices, including mayor. Is his candidacy for the 80th district gaining traction this time? So he's definitely the underdog in the race, and he's aware of it. Uh, The district is heavily Democratic, and he knows he has an uphill battle. So far, I haven't seen any polling, but would expect most or or maybe a majority of Republicans in the district to vote along party lines and give him their vote. If anything, uh, Picard might be the candidate that forces that runoff. And then the other two, you know, they'll have to duke it out in June. Has redistricting made a substantial change to the boundaries of the 80th district? Redistricting has changed a good amount of the boundaries, actually, uh, in the 80th Assembly District, and that's because of the 2020 census. It's important to note that the special election, though, is for the voters in the old district boundaries, whereas the regular election, which is coming up in June, that's going to be for people who are in the new boundaries. The biggest changes uh, looking at what actually shifted is that City Heights is no longer included in the new boundaries and that parts that got added include Imperial Beach, more of Chula Vista and more of National City. I think it's fair to say this is a rather complicated election. (laughs) Has early voting already started in the 80th district? It is complicated. Thank you for hitting on that point. There's so many things with the changing boundaries and the multiple timelines. In terms of voting, yes, early voting has started. March 21st is the actual deadline to register to vote in the special election. But anyone who misses that date, they can still register and vote. They're just going to have to go to the registrar's office or any vote center through the special election day. Again, that is on April 5th. I've been speaking with Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer. Jacob, thank you. Thank you. If you've ever been to the Hazard Center Mall in Mission Valley, 
You may know you can get there from Friars Road on the north side. On the south side of the shopping center is Hazard Center Drive and a road that goes under the 163 freeway to Fashion Valley Mall. At least that's the idea. The underpass below the freeway looks finished but remains closed to traffic. A new investigation by KPBS media partner iNewsource finds the underpass has a decades-long history complicated by multiple lawsuits. iNewsource investigative reporter Sofia Mejias-Pasco reported the story. She spoke with Andrew Bowen. Here's that interview. When this underpass was originally envisioned in the 1980s, Part of the thinking was that this area would become congested with traffic, which, as you write, is the reality in Mission Valley right now. How much has this area changed since then? So, you know, back in the 1980s, Mission Valley looked much different. Hazard Center, in fact, was actually a brickyard. And so at the time, it was going through this transition um, through a lot of redevelopment, and the area was really being envisioned as a place that would be really uh, encouraging of pedestrian traffic and, you know, other t- like, you know, bicycle lanes and stuff like that. I mean, the, the plan was for a lot of redevelopment in the area uh, that would, you know, bring communities. It would be sort of a live work play community that was envisioned. And today, you know, if you've ever been to Mission Valley, you know that it's mostly vehicular traffic. You don't really see too many people walking around. And it's an area that, you know, on the main roads in Mission Valley, like Friars or Comuna de la Arena, can get very congested. So this underpass uh, under the 163 freeway is a pretty small road. It's just one lane in each direction. How could eventually opening this road affect traffic congestion in Mission Valley, if at all? So the idea is that this would sort of provide, you know, a shortcut from Fashion Valley to Hazard Center. And even from Hazard Center, you can easily get to Mission Valley and that this would take off some of the pressures on the surrounding roads. It seems like such a simple thing, just a road connecting two parts of Mission Valley. Who was responsible for building this piece of infrastructure? So, I mean, that question is part of what's made this road such a take such a long time to get completed. And even today, it's still not open. The question of who's responsible has been, you know, developers have sort of passed the buck as this property, Hazard Center, was sold over the years. It's it's, uh, been sold at least, I think, three times over these, you know, past few decades to new developers. And so, when it was sold, the question of who had, which developer had the responsibility of building this road got more complicated. And that's what ended up being the topic of some of these lawsuits over the years. Um, the initial developer initial developer um, of Hazard Center agreed to build this road uh, as a condition of, you know, the movie theater and all types of other things that they were going to be putting in the area. But they sold the road before that happened. And so basically the responsibility of, constructing this underpass just got passed on and on and got more complicated. So what is the role and responsibility of the city of San Diego in this whole situation? So for the most part, the city has said that they are not responsible for the timeline of this project. When I've asked when is the underpass going to be open or Um, you know, what's left to be done. The city has mostly said, go ask the developer. Uh, They have said that their role is only for inspecting the underpass once it's ready for inspection. Uh, And once they do that and the underpass passes inspection, it will be open um, for the public. 
And from that point on, the city will be responsible for maintaining the roadway. But up until then, they're kind of saying you have to ask the developer for any questions about uh, when this roadway could be open or even what's uh, what's holding it up at this point. The current owner of the Hazard Center intends to build housing on that property. How has that project been affected or interlinked with the completion of this underpass? Right. So the current owner and developer of Hazard Center has plans for a 473, 473 units of residential housing in Hazard Center. Um, so the completion of this underpass is a condition of that permit. So they, the developer can't start building until this road is completed. The final steps before this underpass can be open to traffic have to do with stormwater. And as many people know, this is part of San Diego that floods repeatedly during rainstorms. What can you tell us about how prepared this roadway is for flooding? Sure. So this underpass, it dips, sort of dips down below ground level and it was designed to flood. So they put in these pumps in the underpass that are designed to pump out the water when it rains so that it can be more accessible. And they also put in a traffic gate that will close when water reaches a certain level in the underpass that it can't be, um, it, it can't be crossed by cars. So those are the tools in place in the underpass to help deal with the flooding. Uh, Last I heard from the developer, the pumps did not pass the latest test. So they told me that they're waiting on one more part so that they can um, have the city inspect the underpass again. uh, And hopefully if it passes, it will then be opened. San Diego's infrastructure deficit is higher now than it's ever been before. The city would need an extra $4.3 billion over the next five years to fully fund all of its infrastructure needs. Recognizing this is not a city project, do you think that the problems and delays with this one underpass tell a larger story about what needs to change for the state of our infrastructure to just get better, getting where it needs to be? I think this underpass is definitely an example of, you know, the struggle to um, build infrastructure that is going to support our growing communities. Uh, you know, a couple years ago, Mission Valley put out a community plan update. They're planning to, in, you know, more than triple their population from 2012 to 2050. They're gonna, they're predicting to have about 70,000 residents and. 2050. And that's going to mean a lot more people, you know, driving cars, using bridges and roads in the area. And that's going to need, you know, that's going to mean more infrastructure needs in the area. I've been speaking with Source investigative reporter, Sofia Mejias-Pasco. Sofia, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. College sports might not always mean working up a sweat. At UC San Diego, their computer gaming team has a new home on campus and $200,000 in scholarship money. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge talks about the growing presence of esports on campus. Rows of computer screens and padded high-back chairs mark the space where the UC San Diego esports team comes to train and compete. 
One person we met there on a weekday morning was varsity esports gamer Sam Dusen, who goes by the name Lava Blue. He was playing a game of Rocket League with his twin brother. Imagine rocket propelled cars playing soccer. He was asked if esports is really a sport. Definitely, yes. There's practice, there's team commitment, there's you have to put in the work just like anything else. The esports team at UC San Diego was founded about three years ago. The director of esports, Chris Gribino, says the team has hit a lot of milestones lately, like winning first place in January in the game League of Legends at the University of California Esports Initiative. League of Legends is a, they call it a MOBA. It's a uh, massive online battle arena. And so in that game, there are five people on each team controlling different champions with different abilities for the common goal of destroying the enemy team's nexus. There are about 100 students involved in the esports program at UCSD. They opened a new headquarters, the Triton Esports Center, on campus this month. And Recreation Department Associate Director Liz Henry says that's not all. Just this year, the administration put some serious cash into recruiting talent. Our chancellor uh, committed $200,000 to esports scholarships, which is huge. And the students got to see that, and it's really pushing this momentum and support for these students not only to be academically successful, but to award them for their passion. Everybody's got a story about that passion. Sam Ibervich, her gamer name is Sam I Am, is the president of Triton Gaming, which existed prior to the esports team on campus. I would always look over my brother's shoulder when um, he played video games as a kid. My parents bought him a PlayStation back in the day, and I like strangely became more interested in it than he was. And everybody's got a nickname. Josh Chow is the president of the esports team. He turns around to show the gamer tag on the back of his shirt. It's Lolo. <laughs> and honestly, I just came up with it on a whim back in third grade, and it's just stuck ever since. Esports may be a sport in fact, but it's still not official. At UCSD, the team is governed by recreation, not the athletic department. In fact, Gribino says the NCAA has shied away from embracing esports for a particular reason. They've decided that with the way that esports is generally played and those types of students that generally come from it, typically speaking, the highest individuals in collegiate esports have already gone pro. In the NCAA, that is actually not allowed to have a professional athlete on your team. You see, esports is a big industry. Last year, revenues exceeded a billion dollars, according to esportsresults.com. All this becomes clear when you look at the names of the companies on the wall of the Triton Esports Center that helped sponsor the UCSD team. Names like Turtle Beach, Rockat, and Zowie. Chow is a biology major, and he's not a top gamer. Even so, he says his future might be in esports, which, like all industries, relies on a lot of professions. Graphic designers, photographers, but also video producers, even people on the partnership side who talk directly with companies to establish the contracts. Next up, for UCSD Esports, the university will host their annual gaming convention, the Triton Gaming Expo, on May 29th. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, 
Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. This year marks the 50th anniversary of The Godfather, the film adaptation of Mario Puzo's best-selling novel. Francis Ford Coppola was part of an American new wave of filmmakers trained at film school, and the movie marked a melding of new and old Hollywood. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with actor Robert Duvall, who played Tom Hagen. He began the interview reminiscing about being born in San Diego. Yeah, San Diego, that's where I was born. Mission Hills, San Diego, California. Born to <laughs> the Grant Elementary School. But I, have, I don't get back that way much. My dad was uh, had gone to the Naval Academy when he was 16, and uh, he was, we were stationed there several times in San Diego. I remember we used to go to the Marine base and watch a, a movie for a dime. <laughs> way, way back, way back before The Godfather or anything. So 50 years later, what do you feel most proud of about your work in The Godfather and about the film itself? Godfather 1 and 2 were great films, and I, I'm so glad I could be a part of, be a part of them. You know, it's just uh, iconic filmmaking. And part of the way to uh, Godfather 1, I said, I know we're onto something very, very special, very special. I've only felt that twice, and I've, I've felt it very strongly then. And that turned out to be right. You know, just a feeling. You go with feelings, you know. What was the other time? Lonesome Dove. That's the most iconic thing I'm, I'm approached on all over the all over the world, especially Texas. I went into the dressing room at Lonesome Dove. I said, boys, we're making the godfather of Westerns. <laughs> <laughs> what did you like most of, about playing Tom? What did you connect with in that character? Well, it was a good character. I mean, he, he, he melded in. I mean, he, he was uh, an adopted son, so he couldn't step over the line. I couldn't step over the line as an actor or, or as the character. And it was great to be part of the family, you know. I think in one of them, The Godfather 2, I got kicked out of the family, I think. I haven't seen the film in 25 years since the last time it opened. And what was Francis Ford Coppola like as a director on that first film? Because I know he was dealing with a lot of pressure from the studio. Yeah, he thought he was going to be fired. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's a, he was the way he always is. He wants to see what you bring. A lot of work with character, actors, uh, directors that say, do this, 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 do this. But with Coppola, he, he, he sets back and... And, and watches what, and listens and appreciates what you bring to the table. That's the way he works. And uh, that's why he's such a good director. He's good with actors. Just, he wants to see what you bring. He doesn't like dictate. With a performance like yours that's really subtle and such a part of an ensemble, what role did the film editors, William Reynolds and, and Peter Zinner, play in kind of finding all those perfect 
little moments to highlight while they were editing? Well, I don't know. We just hopefully we gave them something to edit, you know. But I guess we did, you know. I call it a, a journey from ink to behavior, you know, from the script to what you eventually put forth as the result. And uh, I guess we gave them a lot of results. Although there's always a saying, don't be a result actor. Let the process take you to the result rather than going to the result, you know. And uh, hopefully, the, you know, that I and the others gave them what they needed to, to do. And, uh, but Coppola said, yeah, well, editing, you just paste it together. So, but I'm sure he was right in there telling them what to do and uh, listening, but still he had the final say. And how did the shooting of The Godfather compare with The Godfather 2? Because by that time, Coppola had kind of proven himself and, and did the set feel different? Uh, it was different because it was more serious because with Jimmy Connors always laughs. We have a lot of laughs, you know. He'd tell a joke, it would take Brando three seconds to get it. <laughs> But uh, the second one was a little more serious, but we uh, respected Coppola and what he asked for and got. And uh, well, both were different, but both were, you know, unique unto themselves, but, uh, you know, terrific, terrific, you know. Sometimes I'd be watching TV and I'll see a part of Godfather 2 and say, let me watch a little of this. And I sit there watching the whole thing. I say, wow, what filmmaking, you know. Terrific stuff, terrific stuff. And I recently saw some behind-the-scenes photos from The Godfather, and there was one of you standing with, like, cue cards taped to your chest for Marlon Brando. And so I'm wondering, what kind of memories do you have from, from shooting that, and what kind of challenges were there? By reading them, I think it was a combination of things, maybe a little laziness, but also you think it could be more spontaneous and more alive he was always searching for the lines. So we went along with that. You know, I I tried that once in a project. It didn't work. But I, I, I think you can do it that way. But I think if you know your lines so perfect, you can still be very spontaneous. I'm trying to think of uh, when Luca Brasi, trying to think of the story. Where you, where you have a son, a beautiful son. And uh, that's what he says to, to Brando. So, so we got into put a right a thing on his tongue that stuck out said, May you have a beautiful son, he sticks his tongue out and says <laughs> Oh my God. Brandon laughed, but it, we all laughed. But once again it was a it was if you're there, it, it, all those things help, you know, relax, relax situation. And Coppola would say, Come on, we gotta be serious now. Come on, let's let's go, God. But he knew that uh, by messing around and and uh, being funny, it was a relaxation project that helped the, 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 the overall atmosphere of the set, you know. I don't, don't be so, you know, so serious, da, 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 you know. And, uh, but so he, he welcomed those things, Coppola. Even though he said, come on, guys. You know, he, he knew it was very therapeutic. Do you have a, a favorite scene or moment from the film for you personally? There were a number of them, but I think that, you know, when I, I guess the one I go to, obviously, is when I tell him that Sonny was been killed, that, 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 I remember that. 
They shot Sonny on the causeway. He's dead. That scene with Brando, yeah. Yeah. When I have to tell him that, tell him the bad news. Yeah. And did you feel that being in The Godfather impacted your career or impacted you personally? Well, I don't know that personally, but uh, I suppose it did. But my career, you know, it, uh, it, it helped everybody's career. But I always thought my, my, the repercussions of that, of, 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 of the movie itself, would, for me, would come a little bit later than the others, you know, because I was always a late bloomer. And uh, eight or 10 years later, it would help me more. And I think that was, that was the case. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Robert Duvall. On March 22nd, Paramount will release the 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray of the newly restored Godfather trilogy, overseen by Francis Ford Coppola. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.